Welcome to 5 Minutes to Chaos, the podcast that dives deep into the world of chaotic emergencies and complex crisis management. In each episode, we'll engage with emergency managers and crisis leaders to explore the challenges that arise in times of crisis and the strategies they employ to navigate through them. From natural disasters to technical failures to human-caused events, we'll examine real-life scenarios that put crisis managers to the test. Join us as we uncover the lessons learned from past emergencies and gain insight into the complexities of crisis management. With five minutes to chaos, you'll be better prepared to face the unexpected when it strikes. Let's dive in. Hello, everybody. Steve Curry here, your host of Five Minutes to Chaos, an unrehearsed, unscripted podcast with the goal of promoting crisis management through the raw experiences and observations of emergency managers, crisis leaders, and incident commanders that have led their teams through complex and challenging situations. I'd like to welcome Tim Marshall to the show. Tim uh, and I have uh, a bit of a, a history together. Uh, when I was with State Emergency Management New York, Tim was uh, in one of the counties, which he'll he'll uh, he'll describe his role because he's in a pretty big role now. And uh, Tim has um, responsibility for a number of different areas in the uh, emergency service and public safety uh, domain. Tim has an interesting story he's going to tell today, and I believe you'll find it fascinating because it, it's uh, lost on many people outside of the coastal areas that um, coastal storms can cause catastrophic damage and flooding in inland areas. Tim, welcome to the show. Tell us about your background and hey. let's talk about a crisis. Good morning, Steve. Uh, yeah, so Tim Marshall, I am the Director of Public Safety for Steuben County in upstate New York. Um, Steuben County sits right on the uh, border with Pennsylvania, um, about mid part of the state uh, in upstate. Uh, we're between the Binghamton, uh, Rochester, Buffalo corridor. We're the gateway to the Finger Lakes. So before you get into the Finger Lakes region of upstate New York, that's where you find Stu Ben. Um, I serve as the uh, emergency manager. I also wear the hat as the county fire coordinator. Um, I'm also the EMS coordinator, the 911 coordinator, and oversee radio communications. So uh, a very vast role in the public safety world. Uh, in Steuben County. Is Corning in your city, in your county? That's correct. So Steuben County is 1,400 square miles. It's a little larger than the size of the state of Rhode Island. It's uh, the seventh largest county in New York State, one of the largest counties outside of the Adirondacks. Um, the city of Corning is our largest population uh, within um, Steuben. Uh, Hornell is on the opposite side of the county, um, and uh, Hornell is a big rail town, and they have a large uh, rail manufacturer over there that does uh, rail manufacturing for Amtrak and um, various different uh, metro um, rail car refurbish refurbished programs for right. uh, across the nation. So uh, two cities, 14 villages, 32 towns, uh, plus the county. So I think that's 49 municipalities that we're dealing with. You know, I'm not quite sure I realized uh, the breadth and depth of, of Steuben County, other than, you know, working with you and uh, Mike Sprague, good friend and predecessor 
before you, we had a chance to work together. Mike was also the president of the New York State Emergency Management Association, and uh, I, I remember working with Mike in that capacity. Uh, I just want to talk a little bit about threats and risks to your county because it seems pretty, pretty diverse. Corning is still a glass manufacturing yeah. uh, town and has a bit of a tourist industry. Yeah, that's correct. Um, Corning is pretty well known for their glass manufacturing. Um, probably most people will know them for their Pyrex or Corelware um, cookingware, uh, which they've sold off to another uh, company now. Um, uh, fiberglass insulation, uh, that was uh, you know Corning uh, product that came out of there. And now catalytic converters, uh, fiber optic cable, that's all Corning. It's all glass manufacturing. Uh, their largest uh, technology um, research area is still housed in uh, in Steuben County. You know, I'm glad you mentioned the Finger Lakes. Uh, aside from, uh, you know, my my emergency management roles, I also have, uh, prior to my state service, I consulted for a number of New York State agencies, the New York State Comptroller's Office, the New York State Office for People with Developmental Disabilities, uh, New York State Division of Homeland Security and Emergency Services. Uh, so I had opportunity to spend a lot of time upstate New York. But besides that, my personal life, my son attended Cornell uh, University in Ithaca, New York. So you mentioned the gateway to the uh, to their Finger Lakes and I, that part of New York State, the whole that whole area is just absolutely stunning. Ithaca is a great city as well. It's a great college town, and uh, I uh, it brought back some fond memories when you spoke about the gateway to the Finger Lakes. You know, I love the New York State wines, mm -hmm. uh, especially the whites, and uh, it's yep. a, it's it's just a great place. So uh, I'm thinking of one more thing. I'm thinking of the largest volunteer fire department in the nation. Is that in your county? You probably know who I'm talking about. Or is that, what county is Binghamton in? Uh, Binghamton is in Broome. It might, it might be in Broome County. Uh, the, the name of the department well, escapes me, but it's a it's a very large, with numerous stations, and they have, uh, but it's an all-volunteer department. So yeah. It doesn't hmm. ring a bell to me, but... Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. And, and I wouldn't be surprised. It's one of the Erie County departments. They've got uh, large, very large departments, uh, volunteers in Erie County. I know. Uh, so, okay. so yeah. I remember working some flood disasters. There was also a, um, you mentioned Corning, uh, rather, uh, yeah, Corning and, and Binghamton. We had a, an event that generated a tornado swarm and mm -hmm. seven EF one tornadoes traveled the length of what we're talking about is the southern tier of new york right pretty much along um i-86 well 17. i was going to say 17 but it's now i-86 right I it, 17, it's, yes. it's become part of the interstate car uh the interstate corridor right and uh, i don't know if you remember this event but oh, uh, yeah yeah I'm so well. uh yeah so i remember being up there with the regional guys and and touring the damage areas with uh the locals i'm sure you you were part of that it goes back back many years but i remember some some fairly significant damage we met with the utilities and stuff like that yeah we actually got spared by any of the tornadoes they they built um as they were coming across the the state some of those um really built heavily over our mountainous areas of uh, Steuben County and then pushed off to the east and that's where they touched down and actually did the damage. So yeah, I remember that event very well, but we got, luckily we got spared from most of the damages from that. 
But isn't severe weather one of the major risks of of the southern tier? Um, severe weather, by you know our understanding as emergency managers, meaning uh, you know significant thunderstorm activity, tornadic activity, that that kind of thing. Isn't isn't that one of your one of your major threats and risks? And besides that, what else, what would fall in right behind that? Snow snow events. So actually, our number one hazard in Steuben County is flash flooding uh, or flooding in in general. Um, but uh, most recently, from these severe thunderstorms that we, you know, you're talking about, uh, we generate a lot of rain. Uh, we have quite mountain, mountainous uh, uh, areas that uh, produce, you know, quite a flash flooding event. And that's what we kind of wanted to talk about today uh, was the event that uh, happened from Tropical Storm Fred um, on August 18th of 2021. Um, so we go from uh, mean sea level um, in Corning uh, on, on our eastern edge, 913 is the bottom of the river. Um, and then on our tallest hills in the western part of our county, we can go close to 2,400 uh, feet above sea level. So from 2,400 down to 900 uh, feet, there's quite a few you know, hills and valleys that we have to get through. Uh, and that's what causes a lot of our uh, flash flooding problems in Steuben County. So it's a excellent segue. I'm, I'm I'm glad I'm glad you're getting into it. The one thing I remember about working upstate New York is that it is comprised of numerous watersheds. The number escapes mm -hmm. me at the moment, and that these watersheds are comprised of uh, numerous, I mean, hundreds of lakes and river systems. And New York is one of the states that suffers riverine flooding that leads to disaster, uh, well, disasters and, and presidentially declared disasters on an annual basis. Uh, right. And so when we talk about uh, coastal weather reaching that far up New York, so how far is, uh, is, is the scent, is the you know, the county center from the closest coastal environment. Is that, is that Westchester? Yeah, I would say probably Westchester would be, you know, our closest. Um, so you're talking five hour drive, um, was 700 miles maybe. Okay. So, so, so I, I, I think that, I think that's important for the listeners to, to understand that when you, you, cause you're going to get into uh, a tropical storm now that led to catastrophic flooding and that it, uh, well, you'll tell us, but I'm assuming it, it, it retained tropical storm characteristics uh, as, as it crawled up North and West. Yeah. We, um, you know, basically we got the heavy rains that, uh, um, came from Fred. Uh, there were some winds, but the winds weren't, you know, the factor in this event. Um, primarily, most of the tropical storm uh, concerns that we have is the copious amounts of rain that fall from these tropical storms as they rain out um, along the Appalachian Mountain train, um, along, you know, Pennsylvania, New York, uh, up into the Finger Lakes and north into uh, you know upstate new york and the new england areas uh, most of our tropical storms that we've had um, this is what we receive um, 72 agnes uh, 1972 agnes is one of the most devastating floods that hit this region of the state and uh you know right now it's still most of the 
USGS gauge sites, it's still the number one flooding uh, situation that has, has occurred here. So that was a tropical storm. You know, Eloise, um, we, you know, when you we were talking before the show about uh, Lee and Irene, um, Charlie, you know, these are all storms, tropical storms that came up through and just caused devastating flooding to uh, upstate New York. I remember uh, the uh, Hurricane Irene Tropical Storm Lee Complex and uh, uh, Phil Parr, you probably remember Phil was on one of the episodes. He was the federal coordinating officer for that. Uh, you know, Phil and I had worked together in the in New York. He was an FDNY battalion chief uh, before that. But the the damage from those two storms that were merged together into a complex for administrative purposes caused such widespread damage and destruction that there was not only a JFO or FEMA Joint Field Office in Albany, there were RFOs, which was something pretty unusual. You had one down, I believe, in uh, in Broome. Mm -hmm. There was one up in uh, Lake Placid. I had visited with Phil. Ultimately, we had visited all of them. And there was a third one uh, a little farther west, I think, up into central New York. And I, I don't recall exactly where that was, but it speaks to the 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 volume of water that these storms drop on non-coastal areas and i think it, it for, for me it's fascinating uh because i'm i'm always of the mindset or had been until i learned about these coastal storms impacting inland areas that you know storms start to you know peter out as they hit land that there's less um uh you, you know water to drive that engine uh but uh, that's not the case in New York. New York is so wet and so moist that the storms maintain their their strength. Right, exactly. Um, you know, and sometimes we'll have uh, these pre-events, um, you know, where we'll have a cold front that's uh, moving across from, you know, the Ohio Valley um, or the Midwest someplace that'll come across. And then these storms that are coming up the coast will interact with the fronts. And that just is devastation. Uh, 20, uh, 2006, I think 2011 in the Binghamton area, um, quite extensive flooding, like you were talking about the Lee and Irene complex, um, you know, in 72 and Agnes, that was the same type of thing. So there was a cold front, the uh, rain moisture from the tropical system interacted with the cold right. front, and it was just a freight train of moisture coming up from the Gulf. Oh, that's such a great way to put it. That's such a great, great way to develop that visual. Thank you for that. All right, so take it away. Tell us, uh, thank you for painting the background. I, I, again, I, I think it's important so the listeners understand what 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 I learned from people such as yourself and Mike uh, before you and others up in the, in the central part of, of New York State. Let, let, tell us about Fred, what your scenario was, your challenges, your crisis management, uh, uh, you know the complexities of your crisis management operation, and it's and probably it's still going on. I can't imagine it's a it, it's not still an open disaster. Well, yeah, it is. It's a currently uh, an open uh, presidential disaster declaration. So, uh, August eighteenth, twenty twenty one, um, tropical storm Fred had actually hit uh, Florida. I think it was the Panhandle of Florida on the sixteenth. So you're talking two days from the time it hit Florida to the time that it rained out over upstate New York up into uh, New England. Um, so it was a Wednesday, um, the county fair was going on. 
Uh, we can always count whenever the county fair comes to town, we're going to have a very, very wet week because it just seems like we never get good days for our county fair for some reason. But um, we had uh, uh, quite a bit of rain in the afternoon. Um, it, it rained steady uh, pretty much most of the afternoon. Uh, I'd come home from the office. We'd been monitoring things. We have a, a gauging network here in, in uh, our region of the Southern Tier, um, Steben, Shemung, Skylar counties. It's a three-county gauging network that we put in place, was actually put in place after Agnes and Eloise in 75. Um, there was a group of folks that put this network in place, and we built it over the years, um, Mike Sprague um, and myself to what it is today, but we have automatic uh, precip stations, um, stream sensors and full climate stations. So we were able to monitor the rainfall uh, over this period of time. Uh, we knew we were getting close, uh, weren't quite sure. We hadn't gotten any calls yet. And about 6.30 PM that evening, uh, I got a call from my highway um, deputy superintendent who said, "You know, Tim, I'm down here in the Woodhall area in the Southern part of my county. He says, and, and I've got standing water on the roadways. He says, you know, it's like two inches deep and it's not going anywhere. He says, the ditches are full. He says, I'm putting cones out, but he said, I'm afraid as we get into nightfall, um, people are gonna be driving down the road thinking the road's fine and then hit these patches of, of, of water on the roadway. He said, you know, uh, uh, you should probably put some something out. So, so at, at this time, Tim, are you seeing the same thing on the on the sensors is yes. this is the system I, I remember the system you're talking about i remember mike showing it to me i don't remember what it was called but i do remember uh the nature of it and and it's it's as you described so um so this system is being monitored so you're seeing what he's seeing you're seeing by data what he's seeing in the field yeah i mean we were looking at you know uh anywhere from uh two to three inches of rain on most of our gauging network um, we hit, we did have a couple of gauges that were up in the five inch range, which, you know, um, that starts to be very concerning when you're talking about that much rain. Uh, typically our sensors are set for one inch an hour. So if we receive more than an inch in an hour, then we will, um, you know, uh, connect with the national weather service and, uh, you know, talk about, uh, warnings and whatnot. Um, so my next call certainly was to the National Weather Service office in Binghamton, and I got uh, the meteorologist, or actually I got I spoke with the hydrologist. He was on duty that night, so I spoke with the hydrologist, and uh, we kind of bantered back and forth. And he said, you know, from what I'm looking at and and looking at your flash flood guidance, he said, you know, and in the rain that's still coming, he says I'm gonna I'm gonna pop a warning. And I said I think that's what we really need to do. I said, uh, because things are going to really start hitting really hard here shortly. So are, so are they, uh, that's, a, that's interesting to me. Are they accessing your data, your, yes. your sensor system? So, yeah, so, so are they a partner in it? Yeah. Uh, well, so um, the, the, the gauging network is the Environmental Emergency Services. Um, it's a separate non-for-profit organization that was, again, formed in 1982. So we're 40 years into this. And the system has been built over years. We're one of the only volunteer, full volunteer networks that are out there across the nation. Um, most of the gauging networks you see are run by a municipality or some sort of a water authority or something like that. We're the only ones that do it with complete volunteers. 
so it's three counties, you know, it's, it involves emergency management, DEC, um, business industry, um, you know, those type of folks that are involved in the, in the operation of this network. So our network does feed into um, the uh, national um, models. So they're, they're looking at our data live like we are as well. That's great. Yep. Great. So, you know, I spoke with the hydrologist. I said, you know, look, you know, here's what we're looking at. Uh, this is what I'm being told. I said, you know, we're right on the edge. We need to pop a warning. So, you know, we, we put the warning out. Um, I said to my wife, I said, got to go back to the office, um, change my clothes really quick. And I live three minutes from the office, literally three minutes from the office. I live basically around the corner. If I could cut through the golf course, I'd be there even quicker. Uh, but uh, I got in the car, I drove over to the office and as I'm walking in the door to the 911 center, uh, they're calling me on the phone and they had taken their first calls for flooding in the town of Jasper in Southern Steuben County. And they had water coming down the roadway, State Route 417, um, and they were actively going out for active rescues at that point. So it took basically a, it are, was a process are they, are of five Swift minutes. Swiftwater rescues or vehicles and vehicles, people trapped in vehicles or homes? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so they weren't, at that point in time, we hadn't activated our Swiftwater rescue. Um, we have basically you know, a couple of swift water rescue teams in the county, um, but they're located in Bath and Corning. So this is on the southern part of the county along the Pennsylvania border. So it takes quite a bit of time. So one of the first things I did when I got into um, the EOC, activated the EOC, you know, called my county manager, called uh, my team in, and uh, I told dispatch, I said, get swift water rescue started that way. Send them into Woodhall. My deputy fire coordinator, who um, is also a fire chief down in that area, he started out to Jasper uh, to find out, you know, situational awareness, give me feedback on what was going on. When he got there and he realized how severe the, the water was at that point, he turned around and went back to Woodhall, which is downstream, which is his jurisdiction, to start evacuating people from his community. And I mean, when you talk about five minutes to chaos, that's exactly what this was. Uh, because from the time that I took the call from my uh, DPW guy saying, hey, I got standing water on, on roadways up here and the ditches are full and, you know, something's going to happen to the time that we, we went to flash flooding uh, everywhere, <laughs> basically, was a process of maybe five to ten minutes. That's, uh, that's, that, that's incredible. The amount of water that the storm was depositing on the region must have been, it must have been insane. Um, so we what, had, was we there... had some uh, reports from individuals, uh, you know, that had, you know, farms that had rain gauges out that had 10 inches of rainfall from this event. Uh, how, in what period of time? From basically from, say, you know, two o'clock in the afternoon to nine, 10 o'clock at night. It's over a process of, you know, about five to six hours, 10 inches. Was, what, what, had there been previous storms where the rivers already saturated? Lakes and no, rivers? No, no. I mean, 
we actually were pretty dry, if I remember. Uh, this event primarily affected um, an area called Tuscarora Creek. Um, so it's a, it's a small uh, watershed um, that runs on the southern part of the county. Uh, the USGS gauge that morning read, uh, I think, under two feet. The gauge went to 14 feet that evening, over 14 feet. So what were some of your challenges, uh, Tim? Uh, uh, let's talk about, it, you know, real core emergency management stuff, command and control, evacuation, sheltering, right. uh, situational awareness. All of it. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You know, so um, we had multiple fire departments that were out working operations, um, you know, and in every disaster, every emergency you know, communications is always, um, can always be difficult. Um, there were some communication struggles. Um, we, we lost a radio tower um, in that area uh, during that time frame. Uh, the generator that was there didn't start. We had to bring a temporary generator in to get the, that site back up and going. Um, we, uh, you know, overall we had good communication with our deputy fire coordinators that were in the area working. I had uh, three or four deputy coordinators working in that area um, that were feeding information back to the EOC. But, you know, as usual, things things get missed. Um, there was a request from one of the jurisdictions for Swift Water Rescue Team that somehow got missed. Um, and, but we did get them a swift water rescue team uh, or a water rescue team. It wasn't swift water rescue team, but it was a water rescue team out of uh, Hammondsport, which is, they do a lot of more lake water than uh, swift water, but they, they are equipped and they're knowledgeable and they, they were able to, to get there and meet the needs of, uh, of that community. Um, we moved our swift water rescue teams in from the, uh, from Bath and Corning area. The problem was is that the water was so turbulent, they couldn't launch their boats. The bo they couldn't even control their boats in the turbulence of the water that they had. So the chief, my deputy coordinator for that Woodhall area, who also works for our DPW department, um, he, he got one of the guys uh, from DPW to go up and get the front end loader. So it's a, you know, a type one, type two uh, front end loader. And he got that down to the area of, of their uh, downtown area of, of Woodhall. And uh, he commandeered that front end loader, put a couple of swift water rescue techs on the, on the loader with him. And he went out and started doing rescues. And they rescued, I believe, 10 people, uh, 10 or 11 people with a front end loader uh, in, in swift water. Um, you know, just heroic. Uh, efforts on on the part of these folks, um, you know. They told me the story afterwards of a of a lady in the community who was standing on her couch in her living room with water up to her armpits uh, when they pulled her out of uh, of the house and uh, got her in the front end loader and got her evacuated. So the well, front end the front end loader sounds like a creative 
a solution because that's what we do in crisis management, right? We have our our structures, we have our ESC, we have our incident command, we have all that. Now we're talking about complex situation requiring comp complex solutions. So you married up a swift water rescue team. I just uh, thought they're all volunteer firefighters. Yes. Up being that part of New York. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, so heroic uh, unto itself. Right. Uh, and the, and the front end loader was used as a, as a transport mechanism and a rescue mechanism to deliver right. swift war firefighters into, it sounds like homes, maybe businesses and right. pull people out as necessary, including this woman on the couch. That, yeah, that's correct. Um, you know, think about your front end loader. It's a, it's a high axle vehicle. Uh, you know, so the use of a high axle vehicle in a flood situation, you know, sometimes you think about these military transport vehicles that you get and you use for high uh, water, you know, high access vehicle use. Um, but this this was what they had at the moment and what they, you know, commandeered to be able to do the job that needed to be done. Um, it, the other piece that was quite interesting uh, was one of the highway workers went to the highway shop in Woodhall, so the town highway department. He went into the highway shop um, to get some of the trucks out, and the water came in so rapidly that he had to climb to the top of one of their 10-wheel dump, dump trucks to uh, escape the floodwaters and not get swept away. So here is a highway worker standing on top of a dump truck with water up halfway up the cab of a 10 wheel, 10 wheel dump truck. So four or five feet of water uh, so, or, or more. Maybe six, seven. That's incredible. Yeah. That's incredible. Uh, did he fare well? Is he okay? Yeah. So once, uh, once the water did subside some, uh, they were able to get into him and uh, get him rescued as well. Um, but the town of Woodhall lost the majority of all of their uh, town highway equipment in this event. Was that the way the bulk of the damage occurred? So again, it runs pretty much from, uh, you know, the Southern part of our County from uh, the towns of West Union, Greenwood, Jasper, Troopsburg, uh, Woodhall, uh, down into Tuscarora into Addison. Now Addison is quite an, an interesting um, uh, piece of information. And this is a great story as well in, in, in a great use of resources. So Tuscarora Creek runs through all these municipalities and Addison is, is where Tuscarora Creek actually dumps out into the Canisteo River. So um, I get a call from the National Weather Service and the hydrologist says, Tim, we've got, um, we've run the model runs. We think Tuscarora Creek's going over 14 feet um, at, at the Tuscarora gauge. And of course, doing flooding the way that we do, we've, we've got very good records of what happens when gauges go to certain levels. So I pulled the, my flood book out and I looked at my uh, gauge history uh, from Tuscarora Creek. And there was an event in uh, 2005, I believe it was, where we had another uh, significant rain event on Tuscarora Creek. And the water only went to 13, uh, 13.5, 13.8, something like that. But I remember that the flood protection uh, levees in Addison, the water was right to the top of the uh, flood protection there. So again, you know, my history of past events, working 25 years in this office, 
I was able to kind of remember this event. So I picked up the phone and I called the retired DEC uh, flood operations person uh, who used to be in charge of that levy protection right. area. That's, uh, that's Department of Environmental Conservation for right. those of us not, yep. not from New York. Yeah. Yep. So, so Department of Environmental Conservation flood operations uh, supervisor that worked that area during that flood. And I called him at 10, 10 o'clock, 1030 at night, and he's retired. I still had his number. And, you know, a good friend of mine, we've known each other for years. And so I called him at 10, 10 o'clock at night and he picked up the phone and he goes, well, I'm guessing you're not calling me to talk about the Yankees game. <laughs> so I said, yeah, I said, Scott, here's what I got. Uh, I said, you know, do you remember 06? Do you remember the flood there? I said, that was 13 point, whatever the number was, 13.6, I think it was. And uh, I said, National Weather Service is saying we're going over 14 feet. What are your recollections? And he goes, if you're going 14 feet, the water's coming over the levee. He said, uh, get him out of there. And I said, that was my thought as well. I said, we're, we're pulling the trigger. We're getting them out. So we put the evacuation notice out for the southern end of village of Addison on Tuscarora Creek. And as you typically know, the great places to put uh, senior housing is right next to a levee uh, next to a river. Of course. So they, have, <laughs> they have a housing complex that's right there next to the, next to the levee. Uh, so we evacuated that area, the southern part of the um, village of Addison, working with the mayor, working with the fire chief, um, the school district, uh, gave them buses, and we took all those folks to Corning, uh, to a shelter in Corning. As the last bus was pulling out of the senior complex, um, they were pulling out of the parking lot, the water was coming over the levee. So, you know, we, we made the right call, we did what needed to be done. And uh, luckily, we got the folks out of there in time because this was such a rapid moving event. And I mean, from the time that this event started at, you know, 1845, 1900 hours, um, I think that evacuation notice went out at maybe 2100 hours, 2200 hours. And in the meantime, we're doing all this other rescue work upstream, you know. And uh, it, it was just, it was a very, very rapid event, um, all hands on deck. So pre-storm, um, can I assume that you were under a tropical storm watch or warning? I think we were, I think we were under a flood watch. Um, I think we were under a flood watch, if I remember correctly. Okay. okay. Um, and then we, we popped the warnings. And of course, there were several warnings. And uh, the National Weather Service actually put out uh, flood emergency, uh, you know, flood emergency messaging, um, you know, so it went from a flood warning to a flood emergency. So I think that I think that, I think that's an important point there, because in, in in recent years, the National Weather Service has started using emergency level messages as a level above warning or sort of warning plus, if you will. So that, thank you for bringing that up you'll start to see language in tornado events, uh, PDS, particularly dangerous scenario or situation, you'll start to see language uh, in flash flood events. Uh, in, in fact, when I was in, in Colorado, Tim, you might recall I did a, a little bit of time in Colorado as an emergency yeah. manager. My organization uh, had dams for our, our water uh, operation. And uh, 
the hydrologist from the National Weather Service office was part of our planning team. And we had uh, for different dam uh, level, uh, dam emergency levels, uh, we had watch warning and emergency, just like that for an actual breach. So right. uh, um, I, I'm glad you brought that up because what's the lesson there? The lesson there is that emergency managers need to know what the National Weather Service is um, is sending and 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 stay in touch with their changes as they grow right. uh, in their in their business as well. Power outages, hospitals, impact to commerce. And a good question: Are we going Horseheads? Are they in Steuben County? No, the so Horseheads is in Chemung County. Uh, Owego is in Tioga County, so okay, I, and I, further I, downstream. I bring that up because of the uh, uh, Irene and uh, Tropical Storm Irene and Lee. I remember uh, significant flooding in Owego yes. right there off of 17. And we had uh, a regional meeting. Uh, Phil and I participated in, in a regional meeting, of course, with many other agencies there. And it was uh, uh, the, the damage we tore the damage area. It was heartbreaking. Right. Right. Okay. So, so, so hospitals. Stuben is the headwaters of that whole region. So okay. the headwaters of the Susquehanna river basin, um, starts in Stuben. So all of our water in Stuben feeds into the Shemong into the Susquehanna. So everything that we generate goes downstream to those areas. But in this particular incident, this was very isolated to the Tuscarora Creek watershed. So once that water went into the Canisteo River, into the Shemong, or well, it goes into the Tioga, then into the Shemong, uh, you know, it, it, it wasn't as much of an issue once it got into the bigger river structure. It was the creek that really caused most of the damage. So it's it's confusing. I mean, you, you you're local. You are clearly in command of the knowledge. But just think about the different river systems you're talking about and the different bodies of water that you're talking about. It speak really speaks to uh, something we said earlier: the amount of river and watershed that exists in New York State. And and I think the lesson there is that. You certainly emergency managers and their environmental counterparts, their hydrological counterparts, meteorological counterparts need to understand the dynamics uh, of those water systems. Clearly you do. And I, and, and uh, yeah, I applaud you for that. Yeah, absolutely. I had a good teacher. I had a good teacher in Mike Sprague. He, he knew the water system. He taught me that very well. And, um, you know, interfacing with the national weather service and the hydrologists and, uh, you know, being engaged in those areas is really right. where you, where you learn that the best. Okay, power, hospitals, infrastructure damage. Right. So Tuscarora Creek runs in behind the Jasper Troopsburg School. And again, southern Steuben County is pretty rural area. Um, you know, there are no hospitals in that area. Um, there, you know, no major, uh, you know, housing complexes besides that senior um, living complex that I had mentioned in Addison. But the Jasper Troopsburg School, which is really kind of the only school in that valley. Um, just a high school? It's a, yeah, it's a, it's a middle school high school. Okay. And um, about 800 students, I think, maybe at that school, six to 800. Um, so that sits kind of as Tuscarora Creek makes a turn and comes down the valley uh, right there on that ca campus. So the water pooled up at the backside of the Tuscarora School or Jasper Troopsburg School, excuse me, and um, it breached a window and door at the back of the building. 
and the water went through that building at three to four feet deep. So this is August 18th, you know, they're prepping to start school September, you know, first week in September after Labor Day. This school was decimated. You know, you had a watermark of three to four feet throughout the whole building, um, mud and muck and just stench um, from this water that went through this building, um, you know, their library, their uh, band instruments, the IT, um, the school gymnasium, uh, the gym floor, uh, when I went in there a day or two later, was warped so bad that, uh, you know, there was no way it was ever going to be the same. Uh, so we're still working uh, with FEMA on trying to identify what's going to happen with the school. Um, infrastructure damage, right? Well, not qu question there from a continuity perspective. Yeah. Uh, where did education operations resume? You know, this event was a lot about luck. Um, because, you know, we got lucky that uh, um, we were able to get folks out ahead of time. We were lucky that the neighboring jurisdiction had merged school districts. Uh, so the Canisteo Greenwood School District had merged several years prior, and they had a vacant building in Greenwood that what used to be the Greenwood High School that actually our sheriff's department was using uh, for their um, SWAT training, for their uh, alert training. And they were able to go in there in the process of two to three weeks and get that building functional so that they could move students in the first week of school. They borrowed, you know, desks from, you know, uh, districts, uh, school, you know, library books, uh, you know, everything that they needed, um, they were able to get from whatever source they could find it and, uh, and get that, uh, get school started on time. I'm sure there was no plan for this. And this is just nope. smart people operating in crisis management mode, calling audibles, getting it done. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we were looking, originally, we were looking at the possibility of bringing in uh, portable school buildings, you know, and, and, and going that route. Um, and then we got in conversation with the Greenwood building and, you know, they started running uh, demographics and it, and it fit um, their needs. And they're still in there today. Um, we still have not determined uh, what's going to happen specifically with the Jasper Troopsburg School. Um, because we get into the whole uh, FEMA recovery process. Um, you know, so uh, transitioning into recovery, um, you know, we got a call from State Emergency Management Office, you know, uh, the changes in the FEMA guidelines. Now you have 30 days to document your damages for a FEMA disaster declaration. Uh, so, right, of course- Right, right, which is- Okay, which is a challenge, and I recall yeah. that uh, from a flood, a flood disaster in Colorado, thirty days from the time of the of the declaration, not the time of the right. flood, if memory serves. Right. Okay. So, so you know, we get on the phone with State Emergency Management Office, and they're they're trying to pull the counties 
to find out how much damage is out there across the state. And, uh, you know, I'm on the call and, you know, they, they're talking about, you know, well, we've had some problems here and there and we want to kind of find out what the problems are. So they started down the list of counties in New York State and uh, was it uh, 60, 62 counties, I think, in New York State? I think it's 67 because New York City is considered one one county because the five boroughs for those from outside New York, New York City is comprised of five boroughs. Each borough is a county within the state of New York. But there, there are no ind- independent governments. New York City is governed by a, a central government, the New York right. City government. So they start down the list. You know, they start, you know, with Allegheny and, uh, you know, A, B, C, D. I'm in Stuben. I'm, I'm way down on the list. Right, you, you are, know? yes. So right. I'm, I'm just bugging out, sitting in my truck on this conference call, waiting for them to get to Stuben. And they get to Stuben. And uh, at that point in time, I think the state threshold might have been like 30 or 31 million dollars to get a presidential disaster declaration so they get to Stuben and I said you could have started with Stuben and this conversation could have been over 20 minutes ago we've got well over 25 million dollars worth of damages here I said we've lost a school Um, I said we've got enough probably to carry most of the whole state here. So uh, there was this pregnant pause, and it, it, you know, and it was like, okay, so we're going to go offline now and we're going to talk to Stuben. <laughs> right. And, um, you know, they started sending their teams in. So they came in and they started looking at the damages and they were like, wow, this is absolutely amazing. Um, and started to bring the FEMA teams in. Well, then Aisa, Hurricane Aisa, was coming up the coast and looking at a beeline for New York City. So folks got pulled away, you know. Well, then they got brought back. And then um, actually it was Henri, I think it was. Maybe maybe it was Henri. Uh, so then the uh, next storm, uh, Ida, came through, uh, you know, so they pulled resources back out, you know. And and it was just this this tug and pull because right now currently we're sitting on forty one million dollars of PWs project worksheets that have been written for uh, this FEMA disaster declaration for Steuben County alone, and that doesn't include the Jasper Troopsburg School because they're still trying to make determinations on whether this is going to be a retrofit or a complete rebuild you know are they going to leave the school in place uh rebuild it where it is or are they going to move the building out of the location it's in and build a brand new school someplace else because we you know you get to that fema 50 percent rule you know where the 50 percent cost ratio of rebuilding versus building new is the big question and they still haven't you know here it is two years later and we still haven't made that determination from what i am aware of so we're talking about 41 million dollars in damages in steuben county just on the public sector side yes because because individual assistance doesn't factor in not yet anyway there there is some discussion out there on the boards about how social impact 
yes. uh, social need, social uh, requirement should have some impact on a disaster declaration. Uh, and I, I think that's a, a deeper, complex discussion, and I certainly agree with that. So we're only we're not even this forty one million is damaged to infrastructure, bridges, uh, buildings, uh, roadways. This is you know stuff that you would be responsible for. I I can only imagine the the in the individual the IA uh, impact to the population of the county. So we did request IA. Um, FEMA came in, uh, they looked at it, um, we were denied. So we put in an appeal, uh, they came back in, they looked at it again, and we were denied again. So we did not get individual assistance in this process. So, you know, that brings up a whole another piece of of the recovery efforts of this um luckily many years ago we started a human needs task force which is converted into a a coad which is uh community organizations active in disaster uh you may have known the term voad which is voluntary organizations active in disaster so the, yes. the, the national voad has kind of changed the language a little bit um, you know, the VOADs are the state organizations, the national organization, and the local uh, VOAD is now called a COAD, a community organization active in disaster. That's a little change in the term that they've made over the uh, course of the last few years. Um, so we had a local COAD, and uh, we got heavily involved and got our local COAD on the ground working very quickly, um, you know, brought in volunteers from um, United Methodist Committee on Relief, the Southern Baptists, uh, the Mennonite Disaster Services. Um, those folks did fantastic work um, coming in, uh, mucking out people's homes, uh, cutting out the sheetrock, tearing out the insulation, taking the furniture, carrying that out. Um, they would get everything to the street. We'd sort it into piles. Um, based upon category of material and our public works teams would come through with dump trucks and, and loaders and take it and haul it to the landfill. And we tracked all of that for our FEMA disaster declaration. Excellent. Because if you were able to get the IA, well, actually you may have been able to apply. I'm, I'm, I may be speaking out of school here it, that as an in-kind fund, an in-kind match. Uh, to meet some of those uh, 75, 25, 12 and a half, 12 and a half percent requirements. Yeah, so we tracked our volunteers. So we tried to track our volunteer hours for that in-kind match if we did get IA. But think about this. This was August 18th. Um, we never got the presidential disaster declaration until October. Um, and then we were denied the IA. So we went through the uh, appeal process looked at it again, were denied again, I think in December, early January. And at that point in time was when SBA came in. So we never even saw a disaster recovery center in our county until February. So 
I was going to ask about SBA because when IA is declared, SBA is automatic. So there right. was that. Then there must have been a separate SBA disaster declaration, which is, yeah. uh, if if you are um, if listeners are not aware of that, uh, even in in New York City, we had a crane collapse. Not not the most recent one. A couple of days ago, I'm going back. 20, 20 some odd years, we had a crane collapse in uh, in Midtown around 42nd Street, Times Square, and uh, we uh, we secured an SBA declaration for that because there are some economic injury disaster loans, uh, small business uh, disaster loans available for for, for businesses. I'm sur- but I'm I'm surprised to hear not surprised to hear you got the SBA separate from uh, from the IA. It's like an olive branch to Fed's throw at you. Right, right, exactly. It, you know, we could have gone for the SBA right from the get-go because we qualified for the SBA when they came in and made the initial assessment. They were like, okay, yeah, you can get the SBA. But we're like, no, we want IA. Of course. So we didn't jump on the SBA because we figured once we jumped on the SBA, they were going to just completely deny us for the IA. Yeah. So we well, you, wanted uh, you, to go through uh, the IA process yeah. and the appeal to see if we could get it because that's what they needed. They needed the right. direct assistance. They didn't need the low interest loans right? because this area, again, like you talk about the social economic portion, uh, you know, this is a somewhat poorer area uh, of the county. You know, um, a lot of seniors living on fixed incomes, um, you know, folks that uh, have have had, uh, you know, family homes passed down from generation to generation, you know, and it it just people ended up walking away from their homes and doing nothing with it just walking away and they are sitting there as a destroyed structure. Just nobody will ever probably live in them again. And now the community is blighted by this. So we worked with our local co-ed and uh, the United Way specifically to start a disaster recovery fund. So money went funneled into United Way. Uh, They worked with their partner agencies to um, distribute those funds through the partner agencies, through case management that um, we worked with um, with our co-ed. So our um, Catholic Charities of uh, Steuben and uh, Livingston, um, ProAction, which is our CAP program, our community action program in New York, um, they came in, did a lot of work with us. Um, Arbor Develop, which Arbor Development and Housing, uh, which is our housing development. Uh, they do a lot of the community block grant funding, um, distribution of funds for those programs. So primarily those were the three along with United Way that really worked uh, hard in the community and uh, working with Corning Incorporated, uh, their foundation. Um, you know, We raised a lot of money uh, and, and tapped into a lot of different programs to be able to push out about $600,000 worth of funding uh, two individuals and households in that region to help them uh, with their recovery efforts. Grants, not loans. No, they were all they were all individual grants. Yes, and then when the SBA came in, what we were hearing most people were using the SBA funds for, uh, you know, they would go to Lowe's or Home Depot or or one of the the chain stores and uh, get a credit card, you know, a high interest credit card for. Um, you know, one of these stores, right? you know, run that credit card up. And then when SBA came available, they would 
go take the SBA loan out at the 3% or whatever it was, and then pay that credit card off, okay. you know? So that was a, a means of being able to do the stopgap. Okay. What were the three? You had the co-ed, the United Way, and there was a third group? So there was there was United Way. There was uh, Catholic Charities, uh, ProAction, which is our CAP program. It's a community action program. And then uh, our Arbor Housing and Development, which is our uh, agency that does a lot of the distribution of um, uh, community block grant funding. What's that? What was that called? Community block grant. You know, HUD. CBG. Yeah, HUD. Yeah. Yep, through HUD. Right. Yeah. Uh, but what agency coordinating that? Arbor Housing and Development. Arbor Housing. Okay. No, I just think it's important uh, because the next question goes back to you know core emergency management stuff. Did did your agency coordinate the efforts of all these? Like, did the EOC stay up the whole time? Human Mass Care was like ESF six coordinating this stuff. Yeah. So we did. Well, you know, we're a, we're a small shop. No, I get it. So I get it. Got, That's why I'm asking. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I've got a I've got a staff of of myself, a deputy director. Uh, at that time, I had a fire service aide that was brand new, um, who did a lot of the forward, um, it, you know, the forward command post operation stuff uh, with the coordinating of volunteers and tasking out volunteers. But the coordination with the the uh, community action program groups was um, myself and the EOC with the deputy director, and uh, we did uh, basically conference calls, Zoom calls, um, you know, because we were still in COVID at this point in time. Right. You know, we, we were we were still we haven't COVID even spikes. talked about that. Right. We were still in covid spikes, you know, at this point in time. So we did conference calls uh, every day. Um, and then there would be interactions between the uh, uh, the agencies on case management and handling case management. You know, you know, we've got this particular person. It doesn't really fit our program. What about you guys? Can you guys take this one? They're like, yeah, we'll take this. And there was a lot of that coordination going on in the background. But but we held daily briefings with them for the first two weeks of this incident. Then we switched over to weekly uh, briefings. And then we just went on to, uh, you know, just the agencies working amongst right. themselves. So, um, but yeah, we kind of coordinated that through, uh, through the co-ed. Yeah, there was a lot of stuff going on at this point yeah. in time. You know, there was uh, uh, the person who was leading the co-ed uh, out of the Institute for Human Services, um, she uh, was leaving at that point in time for another position. So it was, there was a lot of transition going on. Let me also say, when I say Institute of Human Services, they are the ones that run our 211 program. So our, our help in, in uh, you know, uh, helpline uh, program. So we use 211 as a means to document damage assessment. So we had, you know, if you had damages in your home, call 211. And then 211 would capture and grab the data, put it into a spreadsheet, and then send that off to the uh, to the key players, to the EOC, and then we would share it amongst the partner agencies. Uh, so that was a great way of being able to grab um, situational awareness of damage assessment. Was your house uh, was your house flooded to the first floor? Was it only the basement? Um, what type of losses did you have? You know, that type of thing. What was the rationale for not getting the IA? We, they just did not feel that the, there was enough significant impact to the whole community. I mean, yeah, the, the, the folks along the waterways, you know, along 
Tuscarora Creek got decimated. Um, but you know, there's a lot of folks up on the hilltops and a lot of farms and stuff that weren't damaged or destroyed. Um, so, you know, that was kind of the whole. And the other thing that I have to share with you, Steve, in this is, is that part of, again, the FEMA model is a bit broken here. All right. Because yes, New York, you know, we carry the bulk of the damage assessment uh, for New York and, and, and the, to get the das disaster declaration. But our neighbors in Pennsylvania on the border, on the other side, in Tioga, right. They were just as decimated as we were, but they didn't get a disaster declaration because they couldn't meet the threshold for PA. There was enough significant damage in New York, but not enough significant damage in PA that PA didn't even get the disaster declaration. Okay, so here's one of those esoteric emergency management things. Were they able to get, were they able to latch on to your declaration from the adjacent county rule? No, because that's a different FEMA region. So you're talking FEMA region two versus FEMA region three. See, the, these are the things that make emergency yeah. management in need of repair. Yeah, right? abso so, absolutely. So absolutely. If, if, if Tioga County uh, doesn't meet the threshold, they're automatic in, within the state of New York. It's your county, uh, one of your counties uh, right adjacent to you. The, the uh, FEMA declaration adjacent county rule means that they would automatically be included. So if, right. if, uh, if, if, um, if Nassau County gets a declaration, Queens would be automatically included, Suffolk County as well. Right. I, I'm just, you, you know, you really need to understand the nuances of this. And um, right. I, I mean, no soapbox here. The Stafford Act is probably aged. And oh, yeah, and, right. And, and, and we as an emergency management community need to, um lobby for 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 positive for positive change and i don't i'm not quite sure there's anybody lobbying for this at the moment but it's something for all of us especially uh seriously experienced and seasoned guys as yourself to right. keep an eye on and to have a voice when somebody calls you and says hey do you have an experience to tell because you certainly have one here Right. Absolutely. You know, they pulled the SBA right away because they knew they weren't going to meet the criteria. So they got the SBA right away, which yeah. actually we we could tie into that SBA as an adjacent county. So the SBA we can tie in as adjacent county. But the FEMA declaration, you couldn't because, you know, you're talking about two different FEMA territories, you know, FEMA two versus FEMA three different states. You know, they were they were they had they had a brand new bridge that was over a million dollars that was completely wiped out um, over the border nothing. Uh, from Troops Creek. And they had nothing. They yeah. Had nothing. So, so that what we're saying is there's serious inequities mm -hmm. in today's federal disaster declaration processes. All right. Let me start going through some, I took, I took a few pages of notes here, but I'd, I'd like to see if a I lot captured. Lots to unpack there. Well, there is. And I think you brought to the show uh not only a real a real disaster that led to a, a declaration you brought with it the challenges that emergency managers across the country confront when trying to get declarations when trying to to get uh the necessary remuneration to support a disaster response or to support their the families and the community um you obviously had the pa you had those numbers pretty quick 
But well, uh, see, you you got to think about that too, because again, our highway superintendents, you know, uh, they're working with four or five guys, so they're a working superintendent. So when you come in after a disaster like this, they're working to try to get their roads open. You know, when the state's pushing down on us, going, "Give me numbers, give me numbers, give me numbers," you know. So these guys are taking notes on the back of a napkin in their truck, you know, as they can to try to gather whatever information right. they can to try to get, you know, feed this back up to the beast, right. you know, while they're trying to work on getting their roads open. You know, this is the, the, you know, luckily we have a good process. We'll tap into our county DPW guys and our soil and water conservation district to right. go out and help gather that information. And I'm lucky that I've got a soil and water conservation district superintendent who has been here for over 30 years and been through a lot of floods with me. And when he walks out and he looks at a piece of road and he says, yeah, that's a, you know, that's a $100,000 or $80,000 repair. I, I'm, I'm writing that number all day because he's spot on most of the time when they come in and they, when their engineers come in from FEMA and look at the damage uh, disaster uh, stuff, I'm, I'm with him all day long. You know? How many, how many project worksheets, PWs do you have at play at the moment for this disaster? Again, I'm not exactly sure how many total Ballpark. PWs we've got. There's but it's $41 million. $41 million. Right. $41 right. million. There's got, there's there, you know, between all of the municipalities and the County, there's gotta be hundreds of okay. PWs, hundreds all right, going back to the beginning, I'm just going to try to uh, capture so, some highlights here because this was a fascinating uh, and important story. Um, early flash flood warning, working with the hydrologist, National Weather Service, getting that flash flood warning out early may yep. have saved lives. By the way, was there were there any was there any loss of life or injuries? There, there was one fatality. Um, a woman uh, driving home from work uh, in the you know uh, early evening hours. Um, crossing a bridge got swept away okay. uh, unfortunately and and uh you know the warnings were out you know and it's just it's that you know right uh, don't drive what, what, through the, you know turn around the, don't drown whether the public understands national weather service products is probably for another another podcast but absolutely but um clearly um there's opportunity for you know improvement there i i think they've done a great job in uh putting more stuff out in plain language but it's a matter of how the public how how it's what channels it are used to get to the public and how the public consumes that 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 information right. uh, i got early eoc activation critical and the ability to start coordinating around the county you That's are right. early activation of swift water and uh, water rescue teams um, and let me well, add it. Let me add, add to that one because um, so we've deployed all of our swift water rescue team resources that we had on board early on in the incident. I caught I got a call from state office of fire prevention and control, who also does swift water uh, for the state response. They called me and they were like, "We're in Binghamton, which is two hours away from you know an hour and a half uh, away from us." He said, "Do you need my resources?" I said, "Start this way. I can always turn you around if it doesn't get that bad." Because we still hadn't gotten situational awareness at this point, right. right? It was still really early in the incident. They rolled into town where I was going to stage them at the intersection of I-99 and 417 at a at a gas station there, 
Um, they said, we're, we're just pulling into the gas station. I said, don't pull in there. I said, keep coming up 417, get to Addison and help with the evacuation there. That Swift Water Rescue Team, two hours after you know the start of this incident, made 11 rescues. That's critical. So, you right. know, st starting starting to move assets early, right. foreseeing the the threat, uh, was was ab absolutely critical. Eleven rescues. That's great. I I have um, early deployment of personnel, kind of broad for situational awareness. Your highway superintendents, your your road guys, getting that the fire coordinators, getting those guys out there, command level people in the field that could feed back to the EOC. Right, right. The deputy, right. The in New York State, the fire coordinator is, is is an official thing. Every county is required to have a fire coordinator, and then there are deputies that can be deployed as part of uh, a response to do exactly right. just that right. situational awareness. Um, I love the front end loader story because it's it's creative. Uh, marrying up a swift water rescue team with heavy construction equ equipment with the high axle uh, capability uh, clearly uh, is is critical. Um, I wrote down, know your history, know the history of your risks and hazards. And that's demonstrated by your ability to just rattle off dates and floods and, and heights of watermarks and stuff like that. Because I, I am of the mindset that a lot of the risks we confront as emergency managers, in particular on the, on the weather side, which is sort sort of be getting more ferocious with climate risk, uh, sometimes reside in the history of the same threat. So your 13 inch, rather your 13 foot flood was now a 14 foot flood, but you knew to ask ask the question. So, so well, that, and, so and not throwing away those, you know, so and so's retired. Now let's get let's take him out of your Rolodex. You know, let's take him out of your phone. Um, I, I, those relationships I, that you build over the years are still there. They're still relationships. I you actually, know, that, that history is great. I actually wrote that down here somewhere. I um, have a find because I have so many notes. Uh, so I have roll. Oh yeah, right here. Rolodex management. You called uh, the environmental environmental cons conservation right. flood coordinator who knew that information and and gave you the guidance that right. uh, that sort of launched you into get it done mode and started to to take action on that. Uh, early evacuation of the senior center. No loss of life there. No. Right. Calling it audible based right. on situational awareness, understanding right. the threat and risks. Um, making use of uh if i could read my handwriting that would be great uh the vacant school making yeah. make use of the vendor school for continuity of uh of education for the children uh two to three weeks up and running begging borrowing of uh, make getting it done no right. plan another another you know discussion point for another time but getting it done smart people coming together drawing a, a plan of action and and making making stuff work um, another lesson is no one has the depth for multiple disaster events, not the state, not FEMA, not Stu Bend County. So when you go into uh, sort of, you know, nip and tuck mode, you know, we're active, we can't, we're not active because we have another event, we're active now, we're not active because we have another event. It's it, it that yo-yo can be frustrating, and it can be fatiguing. But the lesson there is, we have to sometimes roll with the punches and see if, if we can, you know, get get stuff done in other ways bringing in other 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 players uh your 41 million dollars for pa did not include the school i think that's an important point to make um 
you had a human needs task force, community organization active in disasters, comprised of faith-based organizations, which really, which really helped compensate for the for the lack of the federal programs, and probably would have been put to work anyway to some extent right. during the during the disaster. So, um, I think they deserve our gratitude and uh, a round of applause uh, for the work that they're doing. Because again, those are our volunteers. Um, message to emergency managers, especially young ones. And I, I can't see in the rearview mirror, young me or young you, sorry, I broke you into that, but <laughs> under, understanding the disaster recovery process and programs is critical because when you're asking for, I mean, PA is straight up. Uh, well, it's not, I mean, PA is straight up by way of, we know what we want to fix. But the programs themselves are very, are very complex you know, small project, big project, all, all, all that stuff. But IA comes with not only cash value, IA comes with a number of other programs, uh, jobs programs. It comes with uh, uh, human uh, psych counseling programs, you know, mental health programs. Right, comes which is with, one thing that we probably, you know, one of the things that we did not engage that we probably should have engaged was, uh, you know, some uh, mental health, uh, because right. some of the folks in the community were really pretty shaken up over this. I'm, I'm sure I'm, I'm sure they were. So it's really important to understand, not not just the Stafford Act, but the the, the nuances of, of, of these programs. Uh, United Way Recovery Fund, part of the co-ed, that was, that was critical. Yeah, you've uh, got to have a place to be able to put money and, and start a disaster recovery fund. You've got to have a, a specific organization that you can dump that money into rapidly, because otherwise you're going to have people starting GoFundMe accounts, and you know you don't know where that money is going. You've got to have an organization right. that you can engage, and you could, you know, that's a community-based organization that people trust. Right, and that was United Way Catholic Charities uh, Pro Action. Yep. Arbor Housing, uh, and uh, the fact that you were able to amass and distribute six hundred thousand dollars in funding to the people of your county is is laudable, and uh, I think that I think that's another 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 call out. Um, you know, we didn't even bring up COVID, other than to say all of this. Um, some was coordinated in the EOC, some was coordinated virtually, and I think that there's uh, you know a continued lesson. To be learned and how we and and sort of uh, some improvements we could all make and how we we grow with with virtual command centers, especially for distributed organizations, more on the corporate side. I mean, you, you know, you're in a you're in a county, but you're in a sizable county, so the opportunity there. And two eleven uh, documenting damage assessment. I love that. I hadn't I hadn't thought about where the public were calling in their damage assessments to if there was no FEMA phone number to call. So right. so you you sort of compensated for that you created uh an an, an ulterior capability there and uh you had the ability to call in right uh, the, the damages there congratulations well done well done great story yeah well i'm, I'm glad to be able to share it and uh you know again it's uh, uh i've been through various different disasters emergencies and, and multiple fema declarations and this is the one that was probably out of all of them that was the most unique for us so you know i really wanted to share the story and and give the opportunity for folks to think about you know what we did and how they can yep. do it themselves on their side thanks for bringing it to the show and thank and thanks for 
for offering to to jump on. It's really great to see you again. And yeah, and awesome. uh, yeah, I, I miss working with you. You know that there was some some interesting stuff we did back yeah. in the day. That 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 tornado swarm event was certainly one of them. Right. Um, all right. Thank you. I want to thank Tim Marshall for joining Five Minutes to Chaos and for sharing his career experience and really impactful crisis management story. Five Minutes to Chaos drops weekly on Thursdays. Please follow us or like us on your favorite platform and set it to alert when an episode drops. I welcome your comments and questions, which can be submitted in the comments area of the show, or it can be directed to me on LinkedIn. Uh, Tim, I'll put your, your contact information, if it's okay with you, in the show notes. Absolutely. Uh, uh, you're on LinkedIn? Yes, on LinkedIn. Okay, yeah. we'll get, I'll, I'll include that as well. And until next time, everybody, embrace the chaos. Thanks, Steve. And that brings us to the end of this episode of Five Minutes to Chaos. We hope you enjoyed exploring the many facets of the incident we discussed today and gained some new insights and perspectives along the way. Remember, confronting chaos is not something to be feared or avoided. It is a central crisis management role that we can learn to embrace and navigate with robust leadership and personal resilience. By embracing chaos, we can tap into our creative potential, adapt to situations more easily, and find a way to overcome the challenges of complex emergencies. I'd like to thank our guests and experts who shared their insights with us today. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us. We hope you found value in today's episode and invite you to continue exploring the many aspects of complex crisis management. Don't forget to subscribe to 5 Minutes to Chaos for more thought-provoking conversations and insights. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review or sharing it with a friend and colleague. Until next time, embrace the chaos. Thank you.